uh, we're going to continue in our series on for or against. Uh, in 1969, how many of you remember night? Yeah, you don't have to raise your hands. <laughs> that was uh, 50 years ago, right? And uh, this uh, man, Edwin Starr, wrote a one-hit wonder. You get literally 500,000 extra points for your team if you know what song it is. Oh, 500,000 extra points right there. Yeah, so it, it goes something like this. Let's see. Absolutely nothing. Say it again, right? You remember that? It's also the world's greatest song virus. No, it's, but it's in the top 10 of songs that, you know, you hear it, you can't get it out of your head. I've been singing it for two weeks while I've been prepping for this thing. But the question that he, that I walk away with is the assumption and the conclusion that he makes in a question form, God, Lord, <laughs> yeah, Lord, war, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Say it again, right? Now imagine in 1969 the scenario. I mean, it was tough. We'd come through the two great conflicts, the world wars. We uh, had been through the Korean, whatever that was, the conflict, police activity. We uh, show up in Vietnam. It, it was brutal. On the one hand, in 1969, the Mets are trying to win a World Series and, uh, you know, we're trying to get to the moon. And on the other hand, we're just sending money and people away to jungles that people are like, who even cares? That has nothing to do with us, right? War is tough. That's on the bottom row of pictures there. You're looking at it up here. There's uh, soldiers, three soldiers going across. Here's what I thought we'd do today. I want to make some historical observations, some kind of categorical observations about this topic so that we can consider it. And then I would like to actually get some theology. And that's always been the entire goal of this entire series. We're not trying to reduce this down to some kind of simple bumper sticker phrase. We're also not trying to resolve it all the way out like, oh, this is easy. No, it isn't. It's complicated. And I'm going to say that about 20 times this morning because it's difficult. But I think there's some things that we need to take into consideration that make it a little harder than maybe we think. Uh, first of all, what do Americans believe about our warriors? How do we feel about our warriors? Are we positive about our warriors? Or, or what are some of the words that we use to describe them? Hero comes up all the time, right away, right? What are the phrases? Thank you for your service, right? I mean, you, you hear it all over. It's a very, very popular position in our country to be very positive towards our warriors. What do we think about war? We're a lot more, we're not positive, we're pejorative towards war. We think war is a terrible idea, pretty much. You'll get a random, you know, subsection of someone that says, yeah, we should be using all the stuff that we've got. And then there's others that are like, yeah, that's probably a bad idea. How do those two things sit next to each other? Have you ever realized the inconsistency of that? Shouldn't we disdain our warriors? They volunteered to go fight in something that we don't like. Ever thought about that? It shows how complicated this thing is right out of the gate. It's super complicated. I actually would like to ask this question. Um, do we even know what war means anymore? 
especially since the Second World War. Do we even know? We've got a war on everything, war on terror. War on terror? How do you fight a whole concept of human experience? War on whatever, war on drugs, war on, you name it. We got wars on all kinds of things that don't even really constitute an actual war where there's two things com- like conflicting with each other. We call, we call things all, all kinds of things war now. I'm not sure that we have any idea. A lot of it is because of our own posture. I don't know if this is actually settled in for you. When the great conquering nations through history, if you think of Genghis Khan, if you think of the Egyptians, if you think of Alexander the Great, if you think of the Romans, they had the intent, the absolute goal, to go and conquer the known world as they could find it. That was their goal. That was the plan, and now we're going to execute it. We entered into the First World War not because we wanted to. We tried to stay out as long as we possibly could. We enter in the United States now. I'm talking as a nation state. And we tip the scales, and actually the Allied, well, no, it weren't the Allied forces, it's something else. I don't know what they were even called at that point. We kind of win, but we don't finish the job, right? A couple years go by, the second war comes along, the Far East completely comes into play with the Japanese Empire. We again try to stay out as long as we possibly can, because we don't want a part of that. And eventually we're forced in. Our resources come to play, and once again, that is won, that war is won. We conquered the world twice, and we had no idea what to do with it. It reminds me of the dog chasing the UPS truck, who not only catches it, but grabs it, flips it over on its back, and then goes, now what? (laughs) We're still trying to figure out, as a people group, now what? We don't really know. It's so bizarre when you did not set out to conquer the planet, but you accomplished that mission. That's complicated enough. We also have this other idea where we're like, okay, we're all about security. Now, when we kicked off this series and I gave the intro, I said there's three big societal topics that we're going to have. These are great values in our society, and they can complicate and actually make this issue go into a place that's completely untheological. One is the idea of autonomy, individualism. We're so individualistic, we forget about the herd. Another is the idea of compassion. We always think everybody should feel compassion and everybody should feel good. And that connects a lot to the second one, which is security. We've got this mistaken belief that somehow we have the capacity to make sure nobody ever experiences a bad day. Where did we get that? First of all, what kinds of reactions has that caused in our own society Every time I'm, I'm getting ready to plane early Tuesday morning, and I'm going to have to go through a TSA line. And every time I'm walking in that rat maze, you know, you're just following the million people through the rat maze down at Denver, I think the terrorists totally won. Here we are, doing this to ourselves. Nobody's doing it to us but us. And speaking of terror, what is... That even, how does that even fit the concept of war at all? In human history, who thought, 
Well, what we'll try to do is just scare people. It's almost like if you think about the reality of 9-11, a couple of people grabbed a couple of instruments that weren't even designed as instruments of war, wreaked havoc and killed a couple thousand people, and we go, oh my gosh, we got to change everything about the way the whole... It was like a flea bouncing off the back. And you know that because it really had almost no impact other than the impact that we put on ourselves as a result of that. The implications of that are astounding to think about. Terror as an entire scope, a strategy of war. It's super complicated. And let me just put this in right here as one of the ideas. The larger the scale and scope, the more complicated it gets, and the more we need God to help us navigate that. That's one of my first suggestions. Now, let's talk about just basic instincts. Basic walking around kind of things. When there is an immediate threat that comes up against any human being or most of the animals on the planet, what are the three responses? They start with F. Fight, flight, freeze. Right? Those are the three things that we do. Now, which one of those is right? You're all kind of going, yeah. Because is it always even just as simple? Is the concept of flight... Righteous inherently? Oh, we ran away. Oh, and then we, we kind of cite Joseph or something. He ran away. Or is the concept of fight an inherent evil? Is that always evil to fight? Is You see what is going on here? And at the base level, this is not something that we put into play. This happens to us from the inside out and is inescapable. It's a basic biological behavior that happens. Or think about the idea of predator and prey. Have you thought through how violent that concept is? You don't have to raise your hands, but a bunch of you in here hunt. I know that. I will tell on myself that I have never hunted in Colorado, which is kind of weird. I hunted in the Midwest, never did here. But there's this thing that is this base instinct. All these things kick in. You, when you're hunting, you really believe like all of your senses are almost superpowers, like spidey powers. You think you can hear them. You think you can smell them. You think you can taste them. You think you can feel. I mean, seriously, it's like you start to believe those things because you're cranking everything up to try to engage with your prey before they engage with you and see you. And of course, in our scenario, the animals never shoot back. Right, But that nonetheless, it's this instinct that comes from in, in this predator-prey thing. And if you thought about the entire process, so there's all kinds of intent. You have to decide to get the appropriate equipment together. You have to maybe buy a license or what have you. You have to choose to go and engage with. You have to outwit the thing. You have to actually execute it. You have to eat it you know, by the process. This is a big deal. This is not a small knee-jerk reaction that happens. It's actually very intent. And that happens all the way across the animal kingdom. 
Is that inherently wrong? Is it inherently right? Haven't we kind of complicated the issue by adding grocery stores (laughs) into the equation? (laughs) I don't know if that made it better or worse, right? It's complicated. I'll keep saying that. And let me just ask you this in this little aside right here. What about our virtual platforms where we get to engage with violence? Right? Our computers, our televisions, our movies, our books, our video games for sure. I mean, have you realized how inherent it is that violence is part of that? Is that helpful? Because it could be that you say, well, but there's no actual real-time literal outcomes. So all those guys that I shot in that, whatever that game was, nobody really died. So maybe it's therapy. Maybe it gives you a platform for acting into your aggression without actually having a a functional outcome. Or maybe it's, we're just super naive and we think that that behavior really doesn't affect us when it really does affect us. Maybe it creates more of a bloodthirst and a lust for violence. Maybe it's like pornography more than it's like therapy. Uh, Just, again, to help you with that issue, um, I don't think we have any idea yet. I think we're way too early in history to know the actual impact. And I also am pretty sure that it depends on the individual. Dead Bundy did not know who he was until he started down the trail with pornography, right? So a lot of it is individual, but the virtual platforms thing, the jury's still out. Then this concept, it's a very common concept. Might makes right. You know, if you've got the power, you've got the ability and the authority, then you're right. Whatever decision you make kind of makes it right. Now, I would agree, here here my inner Spider-Man kicks in, I would agree that with great power comes great responsibility. I agree with that. There's no question about that. But does it automatically make the person right? Well, there are those who make a pretty good argument for that. How many of you have heard of the uh, Will and Ariel Durant authors? Oh, good, a couple people in the first service like nobody. And that's still not a ton in here. If I can suggest you a book to everybody, it's about 100 pages long, and it's called The Lessons from History by Will and Ariel Durant. They wrote an 11-volume series on the entire Western civilization from the Eastern civilization and its development, and won a Pulitzer Prize for it. I mean, amazing, world-class historians. But in the process, they made observations about key issues like population and like environment and you know, economics and whatever. And one of those is on war. I read this book, by the way, about once every year, year and a half, because it reminds me of some key thoughts. Will Durant and his wife, they did the research together. He wrote, so I'm going to just say Will wrote this. In the last 3,421 years, he died in 1981. Of recorded history, 3,421 years. How many years do you think had no war in them? globally. 268 years. It's 8% of human recorded history, 3,500 years. 
And the, there's some very long stretches in there that are too big in, in the Roman Empire. That it was pretty, pretty much Pax Romana was going on. So that's an interesting observation. We are much more war prone than not. And here's his two, his two conclusional statements. Listen to how these are almost in conflict with one another. In the most common interpretation of history, he said, War is the final arbiter and is accepted as natural and necessary by all but cowards and simpletons. There's a whole lot of people that would agree with that statement. War is the final arbiter. That's actually what sorts it all out. He also wrote this sentence. There is something greater than history. Somewhere, sometime in the name of humanity, we must challenge a thousand evil precedents and dare to apply the golden rule to the nations. Those things conflict with each other. On the one hand, he's saying, and actually, because why? It's complicated. And that's really his conclusion. He's like, there's all kinds of cases to be made. Think about the technological advancements that happen because they're driven by the machine of war through our history, especially since the 1800s. It's unbelievable. Uh, we had figured out that you can use a wing and air will go underneath it. They didn't quite know all the dynamics, but they knew that it would lift a wing. And they figured out we can steal a propeller from boats and we can modify it and it'll push air. And so we can actually push, drive something forward. But until the Wright brothers, we hadn't figured out, you have to both deal with this motion and you have to deal with this motion. But the Wright brothers figured out the third axis. You have to deal with this motion. And when they added that, it was the fix. And within five minutes in human history, we have strato, you know, these bombers, these huge monstrosities that are lined up in choruses of hundreds flying across continents and dropping more bombs on people than ever was imaginable in human history. Unbelievable. And at the same time, we travel. I mentioned I'm going to get in one of those commercial flights on Tuesday and go to San Diego and enjoy a conference. And I can do that in a couple of hours. It's changed human history forever. Think about what we understand with atomic processes. We could split an atom. Because of that, we had a couple of weapons that we used on a people group that stopped the biggest global war in history. And yet, the threat remained and remains, right? Or, we can use that same basic technology to create power plants that power entire cities. It's unimaginable. The double-edged sword. GPS. We, you can find yourself on your phone anywhere on the globe right now because of satellites. That's just since the 80s, by the way. This is a brand new in human history. And at the same time, we can put a guy in a bunker in Arizona and he can fly a drone and shoot people in Kazakhstan. It's remarkable, the double-edged sword. Right? Part of what I'm trying to say is this. Don't ever forget that both of these aspects are true when it's related to war. They're both true. 
It's undeniable. There's never been a war that had no positive effects. There's also never been a war that had no negative effects. It's always true. Now, here's my little (laughs) end times discussion right here. Is it possible that all of this technological advancement that's happened since the Enlightenment is actually a harbinger of the second advent? I actually have a tendency to believe that. I wouldn't fight for it, wouldn't write a book about it, but I would definitely say that what has gone on is unbelievable and unprecedented in human history, the amount of advancement. And it makes me wonder if the capacity for violence and the capacity for good is actually bringing everything to a culmination. Wouldn't surprise me. Let's look at the Bible. I think that's important. Let's, let's do that. I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts. Uh, before we actually turn to the Bible, I want you to think about this with me. Who created Lucifer and Gabriel and Michael and all of the other angels in the universe? Who created those? God. So they come along, and one of the great leaders in the hierarchy that seems to be God's plan says, hey, we could rise up and overthrow God. Have you ever considered, like, what a fail that was? (laughs) Okay, then God creates human beings, the great image bearers, who will walk around on the planet and have all kinds of capacity and the ability to relate to him and communicate and everything else. We're here five minutes, and those people decide, oh, we don't need God. We reject Right? Fail too. Now, do you believe for a minute that that was a miscalculation twice on God's part? Dang it! I didn't think they'd eat from that tree! So what does that mean? Is it, is the great hierarchy, is the great conflict, is the great war, Part of the plan. That's a question you've got to ask. I don't know that you'll ever answer all the aspects of it, but it's worth an ask. And in my basic theology, I cannot say God was outside of all of that and that happened to him as a, oh, dang it. Doesn't make sense. That brings up the idea of theodicy, they call it. Where there's like, oh wait, that seems like that's against the nature and character of the God that we know. Is it really? Hasn't that been true from the beginning, first of all? And so when God is in the equation as a warrior, as is common in the Old Testament to discuss him in that way, is that really out of character? Does that really run against? Let's look at a couple Bible verses. I think this is... Uh, important. This is Exodus 15, and these two verses kind of give us some insight about God as warrior. The Israelites have just walked across the Red Sea. They didn't pick up a finger or a slingshot or one, one stick to defend themselves. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he's highly exalted, both horse and driver. He is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He's become my salvation. He's my God. I will praise him. My father's God. I'll exalt him. 
The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Now, this is a very common thought in the ancient Near East to apply to your gods the ability to protect you as a people. But what had just happened, believe me, Egypt thought the same thing about their gods. But what had just happened is God had literally kicked the Egyptian gods around and then said, no, you're coming with me. A ton of violence. But praise and worship attached to it. Look at this next one from Zephaniah. I included this because we never get to quote Zephaniah in the Bible. So this is fun. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry, and that day will be a day of wrath, distress, anguish, trouble, ruin, darkness, gloom, clouds, and blackness. And who brought all that to be? God enacted all of those things. Again, we tend to want to not talk about those things. Dozens of people have written theologies to kind of dismiss this as, oh, they just didn't understand who God was because Jesus hadn't come yet. They understand God completely based on the amount of revelation that he had given to them, and he never rejected that. He never said, no, 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 you're not understanding. That's not me. It doesn't have any, I just unleash Satan on you. He never said that. He takes the worship as the warrior. It's a pretty big deal. What was God's key complaint against Israel and why he sent them into captivity? Brought the Assyrians, had the Egyptians, had the Babylonians or whatever. The great complaint against Israel we usually think of as being idolatry. It actually was violence. So on the one hand, God's a warrior. On the other hand, he says, but I'm going to punish you for your violence. Um, let's skip over the Exodus passage, Kathy, and go to the Isaiah passage. In Exodus, God had, had said to them, if you abuse and mistreat the marginalized and the suffering in your, in your nation, I will punish you for that. I will become the warrior, and you will now become widows, and your children will be fatherless. In Isaiah, he says this, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights, and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What are you going to do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom are you going to run for help? Where will you leave your riches? Nothing will remain but to cringe among the captives or fall among the slain. So God, on the one hand, is a warrior, and on the other hand, he's like, do not behave in a warrior fashion, especially to those who are the oppressed. In Ezekiel, he actually says, there's a great conspiracy among my leaders to abuse my people. Then the New Testament. We're not going to read any verses, but you know the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus say? Blessed are the, starts with peace. Peacemakers, you should love your neighbor, but I say to you, you should also love your enemy, right? So people take that and they say, okay, so the great love chapter, that great command, sums it up. And there's actually one author that I read that said, if you start a war that, doesn't, that isn't a war from love, 
then you've broken that commandment and you can't justify it in any way, shape, or form. I'm like, that's way too simplistic. Because on the other hand, how did Jesus react in certain circumstances when some anger and some aggression was required? How did he speak to the teachers of the law who were abusing his vulnerable people? John 2 tells like one of these, just like, it's almost like, wait, is that what that just said? He comes from the wedding of Cana after having just turned the water into the best wine ever. Then he walks down to Jerusalem, and when he shows up at the temple, he walks in, and he sees the money changers, right? In John, it says, he went out and sat down and took cords and made a whip and went in and drove them out. You hear the intent in that? This is not a knee-jerk reaction. This is also not a, hey guys, could we be nice to one another? Okay? This is, I'm making a whip, I'm coming in, you got some time to decide if you're going to get your doves and get out of here, or I'm driving you out. And I don't even have to tell you what happens in the final revelation of Jesus Christ, right? John writes at the very... It's the way the story is wrapped and is still in anticipation. When that second advent happens, how does Jesus come? Does he come as, the, as a nice guy? You know better. You've read about the bowls and the vials and the trumpets and the judgment that goes down. A lot of people die Horrible deaths at Jesus' hand. It's inescapable. It's part of the equation. He was predicted, the Messiah was predicted as prophet, priest, and king. First Advent, he definitely functioned as a prophet. He definitely accomplished priesthood. That's the whole book of Hebrews. That's what he did was accomplish atonement. But the alreadys were there and the not yets are the conquering king that is going to go down. Now, here's the great question, folks. Here's the great question. Why in the world would God allow this to go on? Don't you think God would prefer to have the place that actually we're going to settle into at the end where it's order, it's not chaos, where the threats and things are not resulting in millions of deaths, as far as we can tell. Why the time? And this is the key piece that helps you unpack the whole thing. Paul in Romans 2 makes it clear. He says, God allowed, he kept giving you over, have it your way to do even an unmentionable sin and to be violent towards each other in order that you would have the time to choose to repent from those ways. And to follow him. And the patience continues. Uh, the beautiful phrase at the beginning of the first advent. In the fullness of time. The time is running. The clock is ticking. My wife just left here uh, because the clock ran out on her heart being able to be at this elevation. Right? The time is going by, but it will not last forever. Don't kid yourself. 
And in the meantime, we have this great opportunity to navigate the possibilities. We can genuinely say to ourselves, oh, let's get together. Let's hear from the Holy Spirit. Maybe one of the main reasons we have the Holy Spirit is to navigate conflict. Let's lean into each other instead of pushing each other away. Let's learn. Let's hear what everybody has to say, and let's make a best-case decision. And sometimes, as happened, can you imagine the world with Hitler in charge? I don't think that was what God's plan was. Sometimes war was best. Sometimes it will be best in front of us. And sometimes it's not. We let it bounce off. Determining just war may be the hardest part of this whole thing. Augustine and Aquinas both taught about it. Ah, well, we have to be able to justify war. I'll tell you, this is my last illustration. When I was uh, in ministry as a youth pastor, the pastor at the church uh, got in the pulpit the day or two days after the first wave of Desert Storm. How many of you remember? It's 1990. Uh, Saddam Hussein. Sorry, I just dated you all. But he got up to say, okay, here's how we can know that this is a just war. And here were four, his four reasons. I wrote them in the flyleaf of my Bible. Because when it started off, I thought, oh, okay, well, this is helpful. His first one was, uh, Saddam is oppressing his own people, and we're going to help them. Okay, that's got some traction. That sounds righteous. That's okay. Second, he said, as a radical Muslim, he's obviously an enemy of Christianity, and Christianity needs to be defended when it's under attack. Okay, I was kind of like, mm, okay, maybe. Sounds like the Crusades to me, but okay. The third one, he said this, he's an immediate threat to Israel with the weapons of mass destruction which I do this because if you remember the history, we found like 10 Scud missiles and he had almost no power at all. But we didn't know that. And so we were going to the defense of Israel, who was our ally. I was like, oh, that's got some traction. And then he said this. He'll cripple the flow of oil from the Middle East. And that will cause a global economic crisis and definitely hurt the USA. And that cause will be so great that it will affect the efforts of the gospel in the world. Yeah, in the first service, they all went, what? (laughs) Where did you get that as a logical line of reasoning? Sometimes in our thinking, we've got some plausible things. Sometimes we don't. Let's learn to lean into each other. It's my greatest frustration with our current political system is we're not even willing to listen to anything that the other person has to say. That is not helpful. Our best chance is to listen and learn, hear from the Holy Spirit, consider what has happened in in the past history, and make a decision. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for... um, It's a tough topic. It's a very difficult thing. But thank you for giving us insight. Thank you for being our warrior and also being our Prince of Peace. Thank you for that. And uh, we ask for your grace, for your courage, for your understanding to be able to navigate when uh, 
conflict comes up at a small level, individual, at a family level, at a community level, at a nation level, at a global level. Give us that insight and uh, help us as believers to be speakers of the truth based on what you have given to us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Ushers, if you would come, I can promise you this. Uh, If you give any money today, it will not go to a global war effort. I promise you that. That will not happen. We're not big enough to have that kind of impact. We let your tax dollars deal with that. But thank you for your generosity and for your continued giving to this church. Appreciate it.